Hello and welcome to the Latter Rain Ministries, where we're dedicated to sharing Jesus Christ and His truth with the world. Keep in mind that we do have other resources and information available at our website at thelatterrain.org. If you wish to hear other English audio messages, they are available for free either at our website or as podcast or iTunes. Just look for us in the Apple iTunes Store under Podcast as The Latter Rain Ministries to subscribe. One of the greatest sins that the people of Israel had in the past was the sin of idolatry. During Old Testament times, Israel committed all kinds of idolatry, from serving and worshiping other gods and even demons, to evil and horrendous cultic practices like child sacrifices. In today's world, idolatry is running quite rampant as well. There is idolatry everywhere, and not just in the unconverted world, but also within the Church of Jesus Christ. What makes spotting idolatry difficult within the Church is the fact that much idolatry is subtle, and the assumption that idolatry consists of bowing down to statues or as pictures of people or things outside of God. Idolatry is more than that, and we need to run away from it for reasons that should become quite obvious. Please stay with us for the next few minutes as we look into this together. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, blessing and honor and glory and majesty and power be to you, O Lord God. For you are worthy to be praised and worthy to be exalted, O Lord. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you please forgive my sins. And that I pray humbly, Lord God, that you might be able to speak through me, through your word, through your Holy Spirit. Help us, O Lord, to understand, to be sensitive to your will and to your ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our scripture passage reading today is found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 44, verse 10 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. And the Levites who went far from me, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them, because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord, that they shall bear their iniquity, and they shall not come near me to minister to me as priests, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place. But they shall bear their shame and their abominations, which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple, for all its work, and for all that has to be done in it. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. In today's passage, we read that God had problems not just with the people of Israel, but also with the Levites, those who were supposed to be serving in the temple, that all of them fell into idol worship. Idolatry was one of the main problems of the people of God in times past and ultimately what brought upon them God's wrath. God has a major problem with idolatry. And even though these ministers of Israel repented from their idolatry, things were not the same anymore. They were not fully restored to their past position and responsibilities. 
So we have to ask ourselves, what is idolatry? And why is it such a problem for God? As always, we need to go to the Bible for our answers. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 6, it says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This passage is the first part of the Ten Commandments. And in here, God explains that idolatry refers to having other gods before him. And he explains that they could be images, but also that an idol is defined by something a person bows down to and serves outside of God. And so we can take from here that idols may not only be carvings or statues or images of different things, but also other things outside of God that we decide to worship and serve. During the time when Ezekiel wrote this prophecy, it involved God's so-called people worshiping and serving other gods like the gods of the Canaanites, which even involved demonic worship and child sacrifices. Now, how does this passage relate to us today? The idols of today are probably more subtle and disguised in day-to-day -day affairs, but the problem is still the same. And it is still a major problem for the Lord and the ramifications of that idol worship as just as damaging. An idol can be clearly defined as anything that takes God's rightful first place. I say rightful because God deserves to be first. In this passage of the Ten Commandments, he reminds the people of the reason for why he is instituting these Ten Commandments. For it says again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so he establishes first saying that he is the Lord their God. That's the first thing. He is calling out to their attention his position. The Lord is not some guy or thing out there with little to no importance. The Lord is the Lord, the most high God. And he reminds them also that he has done something for them and purely out of grace, that he brought them out of the land of Egypt, that he freed them. God has no obligation to do anything for anyone. He owes no one anything. If he does things, it's out of the goodness of his heart. If he had promised anything, it was out of his goodwill and pleasure. However, if God does something and he does it out of his goodwill, then he is rightfully looking for something in return. It's a gift, but like every gift, something that is given for unmerited reasons by grace. There is an implication of something being transacted. So what has God done for us? Well, a great many things, things that nothing or no one else has the capability of doing. God created everything for starters. God is the one that allows for us to exist. And that is not something that is within our power. If you are living and breathing and hearing this message right now, it is because God is allowing it. Nothing more, nothing less. You don't have power over your existence. You don't have power over the things you can or cannot do. The only thing that is yours is the power to choose to do things, but that is it. Other than that, God allows everything else to happen as a result of those decisions. We couldn't even draw breath or have our heartbeat unless God says so. 
And so, we owe him everything. And to bring it all together, despite the fact that we have chosen to sin, to do wrong against God, God has so graciously given us the opportunity of eternal forgiveness and salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. God didn't have to sacrifice his son. He had no obligation due to his creation. When it fell, he could have simply just started over again with something new and different. He did it out of love. For it is written, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when we accept this gift of forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ, He then gives us the gift of comfort by allowing for His Holy Spirit to indwell us, and the gift of His Word, His complete counsel to mankind. And so, we owe God everything. And this is why God has a big problem with idolatry, because God is a jealous God. Just think about all the things God has done, is doing, and will do, and everything completely unmerited. And yet, many decide to sin against Him by worshiping and serving other things that are outside of Him. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23 to 24 says, Take heed to yourselves lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so, we commit the mistake of thinking that God is only love, but within that love that he is, he is also consuming fire, a jealous God. The act of betrayal and ungratefulness does bear a great price and it is completely justifiable considering again everything He has done for us. The fair and just thing to do is to make God first. Jesus reiterated the first commandment, the thing that is most important which is mentioned in Mark chapter 12 where it says, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. There is nothing greater, and it is the fairest thing to do, giving God first place and loving Him with everything we are and above everything else. The Bible gives us examples of idolatry and the danger of idolatry. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We have to be careful with the things of the world. We do live in the world, but the things of the world can never take God's place in our lives. What are examples of the things of this world? Vanity, money, power, fame. We can even commit idolatry with the blessings God gives us, such as our families, our loved ones, our jobs, our careers, our possessions, when we give those things preeminence before the Lord. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 to 22 tells us this also. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, 
and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on this throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When we are lukewarm with our love for God, that, that is a sign that idolatry has snuck into our lives that we are paying attention more to other things that are outside of the Lord than to the Lord himself. And like we just read, God cannot stand it. But think about it. Would you? Do you think it is fair that if you have devoted all of your care and abilities and love to someone that says that they love you, and yet their attention is somewhere else, that they find other things more interesting and devote those very things you gave them to those other things that not only are outside of you, but that they are even harmful to them? We need to bear in mind what we are involved in if we have come to Christ. We need to remember what is the basis for our salvation. How are we born again in Christ? First, repentance and conversion. That's the first step. But also, as a condition for salvation, we need to accept the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10, verse 8 to 10, it says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What are the implications of Jesus being the Lord of our lives? The word or term Lord in the generic sense means the following according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It says, When having power and authority over others, a ruler by hereditary right or preeminence to whom service and obedience are due, one of whom a fee or estate is held in feudal tenure, an owner of land or other real property. And so, just by going by the simple definition of the word Lord, we should be able to understand the following regarding Jesus. That he is one having power and authority over others. And as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, there is no higher power or authority in the universe than him. Jesus Christ is the ruler by hereditary right or preeminence to whom service and obedience are due as the only begotten Son of God he is. As Lord, Jesus is the one that holds the fee or estate of the entire universe, as well as being the owner of everything, and so he owns it all. Therefore, when we have accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives in order to meet the necessary conditions for salvation, then essentially we are assigning over to him all power and authority in our lives acknowledging him as the ruler of our lives who we owe service and obedience to and that he simply owns us. Are we starting to understand the implications of true salvation in Jesus Christ? Now, 
Jesus taught us that God's will needs to be done, not ours. Jesus is our prime example and, of course, our Lord, as we established just now. He taught us the true concept of what it means to be subject to his Father. Jesus did not come for a vacation or for a holiday to the earth. He came for just one thing, and everything he did revolved around that single mission, and that was to do the will of the Father. Jesus taught this concept when he taught his disciples to pray, which in turn is our model as well. Not that we have to repeat it all the time, but how our prayers should be modeled in general. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1 to 2, it says, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it is not our will be done, but rather your will be done. God's will needs to be done. The most intense example of Jesus exemplifying obedience to the Father was the cross as he died for the sins of the world. In Mark chapter 14, we read about his last moments before his arrest as he knew everything that was going to happen to him and as he was voluntarily following the Father's will, where it says, And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. When he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew exactly the agony and pain and suffering he was going to endure. There were no surprises. That, unfortunately, was the price of our salvation. But nonetheless, he went ahead and voluntarily subjected himself to all of that because it was the Father's will. He prayed to the Father what he would have liked to have happened, to avoid the whole thing, but he said in the end, not what I will, but what you will. So, how do we practically apply this to our everyday lives, being that we do have different responsibilities? The first thing is making sure that throughout everything, we have a singular goal, just like Jesus taught us, that in everything, we're not looking to fulfill our will, but rather the will of the Father. We always need to ask ourselves this question. Am I doing what God wants me to do? Or am I doing what I want to do? In order to truly understand this, you need to understand the intentions behind everything you do. What are the intentions of your heart? Am I looking to obey the Lord? Am I letting Jesus Christ be the Lord of my life and not just saying it? In Colossians chapter 3, it says this, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. And so, everything that we do, even though it may even be something secular. We should do it focused on the Lord, as to the Lord and not to men. 
That's how we can even make those things that may not necessarily seem like spiritual things, like work, for instance, count. My day job, the one that pays my bills, is not a church, nor does it involve reading and studying the Bible all day, or anything even remotely close to that. And there are times that I go through rather unpleasant and hard moments, like I'm sure you all do. And that encompasses a lot of my time during the day and even evening hours. But throughout all of that, I do the best I can, applying the best I can, biblical principles like doing the work honestly, diligently, responsibly, and so on. And my key focus is not on the money, but rather that I'm doing it because I believe that this is what God wants me to do and where he wants for me to be at the moment and that I do it as to him. The attentions of our heart is what determines everything, including the outcome of things, not necessarily the outcome here on earth, but rather the outcome later on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it also says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so, if you are working somewhere, you should make it your aim to be pleasing to the Lord. If you're going to school somewhere, you should aim to please the Lord. If you're a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter, you should aim to please the Lord with that relationship. And while doing so, we should obviously do what is good and right before the Lord. That's how you make things count, by doing everything focused on the Lord and by doing things in a good and right way before the Lord. Your best testimony to God and others may not necessarily be your words, but rather your actions. That is usually the strongest way we can convey the gospel of Jesus Christ to people all around us, that we actually walk the talk. Are you starting to see just how different the truth of God is versus what is being taught through mainstream Christianity? It should be all about Him, about fulfilling God's will, and that we are to serve the Lord, to take our lead directly from God and not from man, and what man tells us to do. And that everything we do has ramifications, especially when we have come to Christ and asked Him out of our own free will to be the Lord of our lives so we can be saved. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17, gives us an example of what our disposition should be like for the Lord, where it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin." Idolatry plainly leads you to honor, obey, and serve other things outside of God. Idolatry essentially takes the Lord out of the Lord position in your heart and puts other inferior things in that Lord position. That is the essence of the evil it brings forth. And so a person can call Jesus the Lord of their lives all they want. But if Jesus is not truly the Lord of their lives, or at minimum, they are endeavoring to make him the Lord of their lives because we are all still learning, 
and they are not subjecting their will to God's desires, then quite sincerely, Jesus is not the Lord of their lives. And if Jesus is not Lord in a person's life, in a very practical sense, then can there be salvation? And here is where a wider path becomes very, very narrow quickly. And unfortunately, because most people look to carry out their own will and fulfill their own desires. And many so-called believers try to use God to fulfill their own will and desires. That is the true definition of the sin of idolatry. And that is why God has major issues with idolatry. It's unfair, it's wrong, and it goes against everything Jesus Christ stood for and lived and died for. That's how bad it is. Now, some might say, why is it so important to do God's will? And there is a very practical and good answer to this, of course, because the Lord is the most logical being in existence. God's will and purpose is always for our own good and for the good of others. He is masterful in everything he does. Nothing that he does is short-sighted or temporary. He is always thinking about the bigger picture, the long run, the eternal and permanent. Think about this. What if Jesus Christ would have said, I'm not going to the cross. Let's just let people do their thing and deal with the consequences. What if Jesus would have thought selfishly? That would have been catastrophic for us, wouldn't it? Not a single person would have the opportunity for salvation, even the people in Old Testament times. Salvation was not possible until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sacrifices of old were only meant to temporarily cover sins, to atone for them, but not to pay for the sins and wipe the slate clean, so to speak. Without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our destiny would be death and hell. And there would be no hope for anything else. Praise the Lord Jesus that he chose to obey his father and did what he did. Now let's think about other people that did obey the Lord, that did live their lives in a way that truly reflected the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because some might say that Jesus was Jesus and that we are not like him. What if Abraham or Jacob or Moses or Ezekiel or Paul or Peter or John or James or Timothy or so many others that we see written in the pages of the Bible would have not obeyed and served the Lord. What then? What if they would have been idolatrous people? Do you see just how damaging idolatry is? That it not only affects the individual but also everyone around them? When we follow the sin of idolatry, and we don't serve the Lord with whole hearts, the course of our lives is in complete deviation from the path of the Lord. The contrary is also true, that when we do endeavor to follow the Lord and to do His will in our lives, the course of our lives is completely set on the path of the Lord. One final thought, so we can understand things clearly. We sometimes think of sin like it has to do with killing someone or something like that. Something that we think is terrible and evil. But the word sin means that we miss the mark as in archery. And if you know anything about archery, there's a starting point where the archer shoots the arrow. And depending on how the arrow is positioned is what ultimately dictates the trajectory of the arrow and whether it hits the mark or not. 
And also, depending on how far away the mark is, a good archer always finds a way to compensate for those things that can affect the trajectory of the arrow. Now, if you follow the analogy, if the arrow wasn't set up right to begin with, the intention, then that arrow is going to go everywhere except to the mark. And if you add the other things that can influence the trajectory of the arrow, those factors will make it even worse. That is the sin of idolatry. If our heart is not set on allowing the Lord to be the Lord of our lives, and that our attention is not to do His will, but rather our own, all the ramifications related to the intention of our heart will come to fruition. We need to make it our intention to stay away from giving preeminence to other things besides the Lord. We need to stay away from the sin of idolatry or else we will be far off from the blessings and goodness that God wants to bestow on our lives and on those around us. Our lives will always be on the wrong course if we don't keep the Lord in the proper position in our heart. It's as simple as that. In one way or another, or for one reason or another, our greatest struggle will usually involve the sin of idolatry because it is in our nature to just think about ourselves and to worry more about what we want than anything else. It's challenging to stay focused on the Lord for many different reasons because of our natural desire to want to do what we want to do. Everything around us like the world and its evil influences will always pressure us to do what we want or to follow anything else except God. If a person wants to be truly saved, Jesus needs to be accepted as Lord, not just as Savior. And when salvation happens, when a person has been born again through the repentance and conversion from all sins and has accepted Jesus as the Lord of their lives, then the task at hand is to precisely learn how to effectively follow Jesus as the Lord of their lives and to let Him lead as He needs to lead. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and as such, He needs to be the one where we take our direction from, who we learn from, and who we try to imitate. Some people don't automatically become 100% useful and subservient to God right away. It's a process, but our intention must be to submit completely to the Lord and to do His will in every aspect of our lives. If we look to do our will, no matter what it is, even if it is trying to help other people to serve our purposes, then that is idolatry and that will affect negatively the course of our life. It's never too late to change and to get on the right path. Serving the Lord should be our lifelong purpose because if it were not for Jesus Christ, we would be eternally separated from everything that is truly good. Eternity is not enough to be grateful and to serve the Lord because we would be lost in hell for all eternity if it were not for Him. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, hallowed and glorified be Your name. Lord, I praise You for Your goodness and for Your mercy and Your grace, O Lord. Thank You for the salvation that You've given us through Your Son, Jesus Christ for the hope of eternal life. Lord, we owe you so much. And the only fair thing to do is to give you that first place and to not serve and, and follow other things outside of you. That we should always seek to know what you want 
and to do what you want, what your will is. Because your will is good. Because Lord God, we have everything that we have and we have all the hope that we have because of your will. Your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross so that we could have salvation. And that was your will, Lord God. Heavenly Father, help us to be sensitive to your will, to your ways, and help us to at least try to do and follow what you want us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please feel free to join us again next time as we continue looking into God's Word together. If you would like to write to us, you can do so through our website. Our web address again is theladderrain.org. The Latter Rain Ministries is a self-supporting Christian ministry dedicated to sharing Jesus Christ and His truth with the world. The Lord is near. May God bless you.